is in so many South Asian traditions, mantra is ascribed some sort of super magical power. So like, if you say these things, then something great will happen in your life. And what the guru said was, transformation happens through practicing these ideas. So let us give you the qualities. You live by them, and that's the mantra. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. This week on In Good Faith, we have a special episode exploring how people make use of Scripture in their lives. Lots of religions have a sacred text. Maybe you've heard of the phrase, people of the book, which is actually a phrase from Islam, referring to Judaism and Christianity, which over time came to include Buddhists and Hindus as well. Today, we bring you interviews with people actively engaged in their book, the sacred texts at the center of their religion and faith. We'll hear from Dan McClellan, a scripture supervisor for The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who tells us about his short, pithy, no-nonsense TikToks on scriptural scholarship. Then Duncan Williams, a Buddhist priest and University of Southern California professor of religion, explains how the sutras were used by Japanese Americans in concentration camps across the western U.S. during World War II. Teresa Kim Pesanovsky shares her children's book that discusses the feminine metaphors writers make use of in the Bible. The book is Mother God. And we listen to the characteristics of God described in the Adi Granth, the sacred text of Sikhism, with Simran Jeet Singh. But first we spoke to a local university student, Amisha Chaudhry, about her family's experience with Hindu mythological films and TV series. There are over 10 different film industries in India. Of course, the best known, Bollywood. All of these industries are creating films about Hindu mythology and traditions and customs, in large part to combat Western influence. Amisha spoke with us first about her family's love for a 94-episode adaptation of the Mahabharata that aired on TV from 1988 to 1990. Hindus see the Mahabharata as well as the Bhagavad Gita and the Ramayana as sacred texts that tell about ancient history between deities and humans. My parents tell me that they would all sit and watch it. We all grew up hearing the stories, but it's good to, you know, sit as a family. After your stressful day, you watch something. So that's why people really enjoy all these dramatic <laughs> movies and TV series. And most of these stories are metaphoric and kind of the prediction of the future. Because in Mahabharata, you hear about two brothers fighting for a land. And that's just a way that God was trying to tell us that that's going to happen in the future. You know, people nowadays, they're just fighting. Countries are fighting. Brothers, everyone is just fighting. So those stories were trying to tell us and warn us how to live life. But it's very dramatic and very entertaining. And the storytelling is really, I feel like, unique in all the Hindu mythological stories. They also make a lot of cartoon shows, like Little Krishna. Krishna is one of our gods, and like Ramayana. So I grew up watching all those cartoons as a form of entertainment at the time, which was kind of educating me. I'm Bengali, that's the state that I'm from, and we have this festival called Durga Puja. So every year when that festival happens, this show is aired early morning on the on this specific date and it just shows like the whole story of that goddess like her life story it's just like a drama musical kind of thing so we would I remember we would watch that every year at like 5 a.m before school that was really special Hinduism is very picturesque and we, we worship idols you need to put it into pictures so that's why they make all these figures and it's colorful to you know connect to people better so I would totally want my kids to watch them. It's a good way to learn. 
I feel like it's such a great way because as a kid, you don't really, it's not like you have to read scriptures or chant mantras or something. It's it's a form of entertainment. You know, you're watching cartoons, kids play, it's animated, it's all pretty and stuff. And that's just a good way to know the stor- stories and also get some morals into you. Thanks to Amisha Chaudhary for talking to us about Hindu mythological films. These films are an important way for Indians to teach their families about their culture and their worldview. One of the conundrums people face when they study sacred scriptures is that those texts were written anciently by people in cultures very different from our modern democratic societies. So how do we interpret the wisdom from those texts today? What do we incorporate into our own lives that's useful, and what do we acknowledge as a cultural artifact from thousands of years ago? To help us answer that, our producer Heather Bigley chatted with Dr. Dan McClellan, a scripture translation supervisor for The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and rising TikTok phenom. Here's Dan in one of his daily short TikTok videos explaining cultural context and translation issues in the Bible. Hey everybody, the Bible refers to skin that is white, skin that is black, and skin that is red, but none of it has anything to do with race. When it refers to skin that's white, it's usually referring to a pathology like vitiligo or something like that that may turn portions of skin white. If your translation praises someone for having skin that's white like milk, that's a mistranslation because the verb there is to shine. It refers to the glimmering, shiny nature of milk, not its color. Dan is originally from West Virginia. He holds a PhD from the University of Exeter in theology and religion, and he's published articles in the Journal of Biblical Literature, Biblical Interpretation, The Religious Educator, and more. So we have, I think, nine scripture translation supervisors right now who oversee the work of translating uh, Restoration Scripture primarily, but also the Bible. 2009, we published a Latter-day Saint edition of the Bible in Spanish. Um, Historically, we've only published our own version of the King James Version. And for non-English speakers, what we do is evaluate all the available Bible translations and then designate one as our quote-unquote preferred translation based on which one comes the closest to meeting the criteria that we've established for doctrinal accuracy and quality and things like that. Back about 20 years ago, they said, well, let's take the preferred translation in Spanish has a version that's in the public domain. So let's update the language and then translate the study helps, the footnotes and the chapter headings. And let's publish our own editions. What was the experience for you where you said, wait a minute, I want to know more about this. I want to study this more deeply. And then also that sort of Again, one of the reasons Americans are so afraid of intellectuals is there's this idea that you're going to critique everything and you're going to destroy it and then it won't be valuable anymore. I think that's the undergirding fear. I have a PhD. My emphasis was in film and I've had so many people say, well, you can no longer watch a movie. And my reaction is I actually can watch a lot more movies now because I'm not uncomfortable, a different kind of film, right? I would say it started between my getting baptized when I was 20 years old in in the year 2000 and the year between that and leaving on a mission. When I was baptized in September of 2000, I had not I had read the Book of Mormon. That was about it. I didn't know much about the the rest of the scriptures. I had read some other things. I'd read the Gita, sure. a handful of different uh, texts that we refer to uh, as as scripture from certain societies, but I had never read the Bible. Shortly after I got baptized, my bishop said, hey, we want you to prepare for a mission. And I realized, you know, I'd be leaving in about a year. I was going to be way behind most everyone else out there in the mission field in terms of of scriptural literacy. Uh, And I read through the entire standard works in that year before I went out on a mission, and I loved it. I thought the, the stories were fascinating. I just enjoyed immersing myself in that world. And then I got out into the mission field and, and realized I was actually now way ahead of most of the other yes. people. And as a missionary, I didn't have a lot of opportunity to study beyond just the scriptures and what few resources were made available to us. As I made the scriptures more complex 
and more exciting and more stimulating. But I was also learning that they were not just kind of a static unidimensional thing. They were something that could inform all different aspects of my life. And the better I understood how they functioned anciently or in the early church, I felt like the more tools I had to turn them into something that can inform my own experiences, give meaning to my life and help me guide my my decisions and my behavior. So I think it's a little bit counterintuitive for, for some people, but the more I could learn to deconstruct them and see them from a more humanistic kind of critical point of view, I felt like they became more useful to me from a devotional point of view uh, because it was not about creating clear, sharp boundaries, which is what I, I think a lot of people want to think about the scriptures as having clear, sharp boundaries. Yeah, You know, inerrancy is, is a product of that desire to create these clear, sharp boundaries. It's, it's 100% binary. You know, it's all true or it's all false. Right. And I think that serves boundary maintenance and that serves structuring power more than it serves what the scripture seemed to me to be for, which is to help us inform our experiences, to help us learn about God's relationship with people in a way that changes our behavior. Uh, something that I've heard from a number of, of leaders in the church when I've talked to them about the purpose of the scriptures is that we hope to learn doctrine that changes behavior. I think it's it's more productive when instead of just assuming that our own interpretive lenses are adequate, that we try to seek what it meant to them anciently, how they use it anciently, and use that as a foundation for building our likening of the scriptures to ourselves. There are a couple of examples of scriptures that have very kind of common normative readings that I have challenged in print because I, I think they are um, doing precisely that, kind of imposing a contemporary framework on them. One of them is um, 2 Nephi 25, 23. We know that it is by faith that we are saved after all that we can do. That has long been understood to mean that we are saved by faith once we have done everything that we can do. And in a lot of ways, this serves some of the um, identity politics of the institutional church in that it distinguishes us. You know, for a long time, we were we were the antithesis of the free grace kind mm-hmm. of movement. We were like, no, we don't believe that. And this was this, the proof text for that. No, we believe in we're saved by grace after all that we can do. Uh, I published a paper in two, 2020. I think it was 2020 in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, where I I showed that this is a phrase that was actually quite common in the early 19th century and in discussions about grace. But everywhere it was used, it meant despite all we can do. And so what 2 Nephi 25, 23 was saying for an 1830 English-speaking audience was not we're saved by grace once we've done everything that we can do, but we're saved by grace no matter what else we could ever do. Right. Um, and despite all we can do. This actually makes me think when you use the word despite, it means nothing you do is actually going to help you. And in fact, my efforts might even make it worse, right? And what's so odd is that we have held up this other view of this passage right next to Mosiah 2, which says we are unprofitable servants. Right. You know, if we do everything, we are still unprofitable servants, which is exactly the same message. Right. No matter what you could ever do, that's not what saves you. It's it's grace. And, and so I think that's an example of us giving priority to the rhetorical utility of a reading and not worrying about, well, how did this function initially independent of that rhetorical context? That's one example, I think, of, uh, of how making it a little more complicated, making it a little less comfortable for contemporary Latter-day Saints, I think makes it more meaningful and makes it resonate more with the broader message of the gospel. You know, uh, I mentioned that when I came into the church, nobody was like, here's how you're supposed to think about everything. But one of the things that guided my thinking was the title page to the Book of Mormon, which acknowledges that there can be errors in here. And its concern is really, you have to pretend there are no errors. The concern is, if you find errors... Don't blame this on God. These are the errors of men. Right. And I was like, okay, 
then I'm going to approach this as something that is the product of human endeavor inspired but still something that has that has been communicated through an imperfect medium and so may have errors and i found that it's it's odd that we have that there in the in the scriptural text but we don't avail ourselves of that when we think about what does this mean what can this mean what can it not mean i i think uh we should have one of the most robust and revolutionary hermeneutics, scriptural hermeneutics of any Christian church on the planet right now. But I think sometimes we sell ourselves short. So I think we're all kind of fascinated by TikTok and what you're doing there. Tell us, what need did you see and how are you helping people or answering questions for people? So a lot of people have been raised with certain perspectives about things like the Bible and what it is, where it came from, who's responsible for it, how it has been translated. There is conflict from the different sides about, oh, it's inerrant, it's perfect, it's God's word, and then it's fairy tales, it's all made up. It was emperors who translated it and put it all together and nobody ever really existed. That kind of battleground is one of the big ones. And I have appealed to folks on both sides of that by trying to share better information about where the Bible comes from, how it is not univocal. This is one of the the terms that I think I've introduced to a lot of people's vocabularies, this notion that the whole Bible speaks with one unified, consistent voice. That's kind of a, a bedrock of a lot of conservative approaches to the Bible. But I think when you gloss over the fact that there is disagreement and there is conflict and there is even contradiction in the Bible, in order to try to harmonize things, you have to produce new readings that were never intended by anyone responsible for any of the texts. And so I've tried to make the case that it does damage, does violence to the texts to impose this presupposition that it always has to mean one single thing. If people really appreciate the text, they should be able to hold, you know, some of these texts in tension to acknowledge that, you know, this writer may not agree with this other writer over here. And we lose both of their messages if we try to come up with a way to make them agree. That was Dan McClellan. You can find him on all the social media platforms where he's working to clarify what's historically accurate and linguistically correct in our interpretation of biblical scripture. Dan spoke to Heather about uncovering a more accurate interpretation of the Bible and the Book of Mormon, sacred texts for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But what if you lived in a place and a time where you felt like your most cherished beliefs that you found in your sacred texts couldn't be lived? How would you maintain a relationship with your sacred text? Dr. Duncan Williams at the University of Southern California spoke with Heather about an ongoing exhibit at the Japanese-American National Museum in Los Angeles. Dr. Williams and his co-curator, Dr. Emily Anderson, pulled together spiritual artifacts that internees used to help them find peace during their incarceration in World War II concentration camps in California, Arizona, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, and Arkansas. These camps were established by Franklin Roosevelt with Executive Order 9066, and they were used from 1942 to 1945. Started because of security fears after the Japanese bombing of the naval base Pearl Harbor in Hawaii in 1941. Ultimately, that executive order impacted 120,000 people of Japanese descent, most of them American citizens. Buddhist sacred scriptures are called sutra. The word sutra has its origin in Sanskrit, connected to thread and sewing, with the understanding that the sutras weave through our lives to create harmony and balance. The Bovi family uh, owned the land right near there. And when the Bureau of Land Management people were kind of using graders and whatever to kind of like make the soil level, uh, they struck this oil can and cracked it open by accident. And then out came these stones. And the Bowie family 
took those stones and the whole drum and put it in their barn. And for years, it just sat, sat there as the mystery stones because they didn't know what it was. And when Japanese American people started to go back on pilgrimage and visits and so forth to that camp in Wyoming, every time they went, they would uh, visit the Bowie family who'd always, does anybody know what these stones are? And it became dubbed the mystery stone until the 1990s when it was, I should say, gifted by the that family to the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles. It was still a mystery until one day a Japanese scholar of Buddhism uh, from Japan happened to be visiting LA and happened to be visiting that museum and saw a few of the stones on display and recognized those characters as very typical characters that in a certain combination would be a part of a Buddhist sutra or a Buddhist you know, scripture. Each stone had a single Japanese kanji character, like a Chinese character on it. And he basically made a copy of all of them. And with his colleague, a different professor, they ran it through this database of Buddhist scriptures and found that it matched exactly with one particular chapter of the Lotus Sutra, which is an important Buddhist scripture in East, East Asia. The mystery got further kind of solved in the sense of, well, who put it there? There was a, a Reverend uh, Murakita Nichikan, who was a Buddhist priest here in L.A. right before the war. He belonged to a sect of Buddhism called the Nichiren Buddhism, and they revere the, this particular scripture called the Lotus Sutra. And he would have committed that to memory. He also happened to be inside of that camp in Wyoming. It's master calligraphy instructor, and they would have these calligraphy contests. So we believe that it was him and or some of his calligraphy students that right. must have put those Buddhist scriptures, writing them carefully on these stones, then burying it. And that's the last part of the mystery was why did they write it out? Because copying of scripture is not an unusual thing for faith communities to do. But why would you bury them, put them on stone and then bury them in a in near the cemetery? And in medieval Japan, there's a tradition. It's called Kyozuka Sutra Burial Mounds, where you would copy scriptures, sometimes on paper, sometimes on stone, and bury it. They believe that there's a kind of, in Buddhist traditions, they believe like at some point after the Buddha's death, there's an end of a cycle and a new Buddha will come to the land. We don't know exactly how to calculate how long it's supposed to take, you know, yeah. uh, but uh, in medieval Japan, they had famine and plague and wars. And they believe they were in that time. So they were like, we need to copy the scriptures and bury them and, and hide them until we can practice again when the new Buddha comes. So that practice has been there for a long time. And we believe that this was like, you know, during war inside this construct. And they were like, well, we can't seem to practice Buddhism openly, freely. And we're here, but for almost like a prayer for a better time, we think like that was the motivation behind that particular practice of copying the sutra on the stone, burying it uh, underground and waiting for a better time. And it isn't the Lotus Sutra one of the the teachings or or most important teachings out of that is this idea of unity? There's this real interest, like there's no room for this unity, this idea of unity right now. Right now, right. But we uh, we are praying for and as aspirationally we we wish for a time when that could be possible. You know, when the idea that 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 particular part of the teaching in the Lotus Sutra is is about the idea that the Buddha actually taught many different teachings, and maybe some of them even might be contradictions. But the scripture says the Buddha gave his teachings like medicine to uh, people who have ailments. Yeah. And sometimes you, you can't give the same medicine to everyone. You have to give it a little bit different medicine or the different dosage, or that's why there's many teachings. But they're all part of one teaching, which is about how do you have a pathway to alleviate suffering, because that's the ultimate goal of the tradition. To me, it's such a poignant image of this incredible work with your hands right. and sort of making concrete, if you will, this teaching and then burying it. I mean, that's that really touches me. I also, when I look at those stones, and I'm just, I just saw them on Zoom, but they're small and they remind me of sort of the perfect size to skip if you like yes, to skip on yes. a river. Talk a little bit about what they look like. You know, most of these camps initially were guarded as if these, every single person in these camps was a potential saboteur, you know, spy or whatever. But everyone started to realize they're just 
regular people. I think they had a little bit looser rules. And there's the Shoshone River that's running nearby. And I think some people were able to get permission to go out of camp to the river. And we believe that it's from that riverbed that they started to get those stones. They're not all the same shape. They're all small stones with slightly different shapes. And they probably polished it a little bit before trying to put the uh, character on it so that the character would fit and also not look strange with the jags on the you know stones. You talked about the relaxing of sort of regulations and the monitoring in the camps. And that was something that struck me because there are these these wood carvings, uh, pretty elaborate wood carvings. There's this something that had sort of the cosmos on it or symbols of the cosmos on it. So what are these ornate carvings? Why would they have done these? Why were they sure. so important? For the Buddhists, a lot of times you'll have at a temple, an altar area, and there's what's called a shumidan or, or, or an altar that is usually carved of wood that's uh, installed in a temple that in some tra traditions of Buddhism, those altar carvings kind of include elements and symbols of the tradition, such as lotus flowers, which is supposed to represent the Buddha's enlightenment or different realms of reality that's supposed to represent Buddha worlds and pure lands and things like that. And those are engraved or carved onto uh, the alt temple altar traditionally. And so as it turned out, in many of the camps, uh, you know, people couldn't take more than a suitcase with them. So if they needed any furniture or furnishings or whatever, it's not like they could just get it. There's no like store in camp to get it. Uh, so there were some people that were able to order Sears and Roebuck uh, catalog and oh, stuff wow. like that. But uh, many people built things. The government kind of recognized that and, and they allowed in each camp carpentry shop type of like a barrack that they dedicated for things like that. And so they had the you know, necessary equipment to make tables or uh, baby cots. or And so people made things out of found wood at the mess hall. You know, fruit and vegetables were, in crates in those days were made of wood and they take that apart and reuse and recycle that to make what they needed. But among the, beyond the practical things like baby cots or nightstands, they would also make things like these large Buddhist altars for the temples, one of which is on display at, at, the, at the exhibit, but also these smaller ones. And these ones are called butsudan. They're, they're, they're like a home altar. Every family uh, typically has a little, it's a small thing, you know, like a foot tall type of small compact altar that they place somewhere in their home, somewhere safe. They might have a Buddha statue in it. They might have a, a scroll with a, some scriptural saying on it, etc. Gather in front of it every day to say a few prayer or chanting or something like that. Uh, it was a kind of like home practice so that you didn't always have to go to the temple. They were given a week to 10 days before the, they have to go to these camps. And so they, if you think about like what, and there, you can only take what you can carry. So that meant a suitcase for most people. Most people didn't think to bring those. And right. so, again, those were often made in camp. And we have several of them on display. A lot of families uh, made them. They were sometimes made rather crudely, mm -hmm. but but still you can feel the feeling behind it. So people kept it after the war. So that's why we have uh, multiple on display made in camp. One of the things that you mentioned was not only that people were using crates, but they were perhaps able to gather wood from the area. And so... This is such an interesting idea to me that they're able to use the meager resources to create something that then allows them to get through this experience. In Arkansas, there were two camps, a rower and Jerome, a small town called McGee, Arkansas, that's still there. That's kind of in between the two former camps. But the former camps themselves, they're like cotton fields right. uh, when, you, when you go there. So there's no remnant of, of the place except a small cemetery that served the camp. And uh, in Rower. And there's a monument that was kind of made out of concrete that still stands there amongst the other kind of tombstones and so forth. And that monument, it was a Buddhist priest, uh, Reverend Hayashima uh, Daitetsu. He, he organized uh, taking some of the rebar and from the fence line, incorporating it into the design structural holding of that monument so that the concrete would set properly and it was a kind of fairly tall monument. And so they needed some structural integrity. So they used the things that were 
confining them, the, the barbed wire right. and the, the fence itself to kind of build the thing that they'd be kind of proud of building. A, pretty resourceful, but also B, I think kind of using a philosophy of like, we're in this very difficult moment. Let's take the kind of things that are the negative circumstances, the karmic circumstance of our life, but, but transform it into something that is uh, showing us a way towards freedom and showing us a way towards healing this very difficult uh, experience. That was Buddhist priest and university researcher, Dr. Duncan Williams. If you have a chance, we recommend you check out the exhibition Sutra and the Bible at the Japanese American National Museum running through October 27, 2022. And you can watch Duncan in the Zoom introduction of the exhibit hosted at www.janm.org. Next, we turn to an interview with Reverend Teresa Kim Pesanovsky in Houston, Texas. Teresa recently published a children's book called Mother God, where she gathered together feminine metaphors and maternal imagery used in the Bible to describe God and God's actions in our lives. Teresa told me about a transition she underwent from being a child who faithfully read her Bible to a young adult anxious to learn more about how the Bible was assembled and became the book Christian Study Today. Teresa was once an early elementary educator, and she attended the Vanderbilt Divinity School. She's a hospice chaplain and contributing writer for the upcoming Shine Story Bible through Menno Media and Brethren Press. Scripture has always been a very important and integral part of my spiritual life. I was very devoted as a child growing up. My mother was often my Sunday school teacher and was very involved in making Sunday school lessons exciting and interesting. I went to summer camp throughout my elementary and junior high years. God to me was a very loving father. And so I would say I had a very typical evangelical exposure of God identity. You know, Jesus as your your savior and also your friend. I grew up memorizing scriptures left and right. I can still recite the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7, mostly by heart, which I memorized when I was in seventh grade. The way that I interpret scripture and the way I look at hermeneutics has significantly changed as I become an adult. I was taught and I believed that scripture was God saying to the writer in the beginning. We're going to write down each word, right? Nobody taught me that. Nobody nobody taught me that, oh, God definitely spoke each word to the writers of scripture. But it was very much a part of the culture of religion that I was brought into. When I was an undergraduate, I started learning about how did the Bible actually come to be? Let's look at the Council of Nicaea and Jamnia and all of these historical theological battles that were fought over what gets to be considered canon and not. When I was being raised, I was taught that the Catholic Apocrypha was not Holy Scripture at all. I was not to read it. It was very much off limits. As a 17-year-old in college, I started learning, oh, there's a little bit more to it than that. In fact, there's a lot more to it than this is bad and this is good. This is inspired and this is not. My mother is still living and she was delighted to see this spread with the grandmother because my children call her Baba. Uh So she saw it and she got really excited. She said, I'm in your book. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my question, how, how your earthly mother feels about this particular book. I was a little nervous and I'm kind of glad my mom doesn't listen to podcast. (laughs) But, uh, When I first told her about the book deal, she said, oh, well, what is it going to be about? I said, well, it's going to be about God in maternal and feminine imagery. And there was a pause on the phone. I knew what that meant. She's like, oh, okay. But then later when I explained to her that it was all going to be scripture based, she was a little bit more on board. And when I actually sent her the scripture guide, she was very pleased with that. Uh, My mother and I have pretty different theological views now. But I think it does show not only just because she's my mom and she's obviously proud of me, but you have more conservative Christians to have had Jewish, Muslim, LDS, non-religious, atheist, Baha'i readers, all who have found value and meaning in this book, which I just didn't know what the response would be outside of 
my particular Protestant tradition because that's what I know. If if I were pressed, and I tried before I opened the book to think, what do I know about finding Mother God in the Scriptures? It was not much. Off the top of my head, I came up with New Testament and Jesus saying, how many times would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chicks? But you would not. That seems like a feminine image of the divine. But your book goes all the way through the Old Testament as well and pulls out things that I would not have come to just from my viewpoint, which is why it's really useful to hear your work and what it can teach me. Were you surprised as you started looking for these kind of traits or had you been very aware of them before, even in Old Testament? Most of the references I have are Hebrew Bible references. And there are a lot of references in Isaiah, in the scripture guide, of course, throughout the Proverbs and in Midrash, there's a lot of God identified as, you know, Shekinah or Sophia wisdom. And part of the the challenge and problem too is that our English translations often hide feminine pronouns and identification from the original writers. So it's a translation issue as well. Specifically in English or other languages? uh, That's a good question. I have very rudimentary knowledge of Greek, but don't press me to parse for you. (laughs) I will not pass. (laughs) I think it's more obvious in Hebrew because English, we don't have feminine, masculine, neuter pronouns like in many other languages. Well, I'm just looking at something as simple as Genesis chapter 1. God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. So it's using he there, but it says male and female created he them, which we tend to think of God creates man and woman, but he creates them both in the image of God. Right. Which implies a a feminine. Even that first sentence in Hebrew, it starts when God created, as God created in Latin, we would say in medias reus, in the middle of the, Mm. the action. And there are two creation stories, which a lot of people are surprised when they learn that. And the depiction of God as a seamstress is from one of the Genesis myths about God created and fashioned clothing for Adam and Eve. And for that, you can get that God is a seamstress, which some of those more creative things, I had to do a little bit more digging. The only reference that I was not familiar with was the reference of God as a leopard, which is in Hosea. And it's my favorite because it was a new image for me and my kids love it. It made for a great illustration too. So I'm looking at, uh, here's from Isaiah 45, where it talks about how terrible it would be for anyone to argue with their maker. Does the clay say to a potter, what are you making? You don't have any skill. How terrible it will be for anyone who says to a father, why did you give me life? How terrible for anyone who says to a mother, why have you brought me into the world? So these images, and there are so many of them, are of the God who birthed you and Once you put a lens of finding the feminine aspects of divine in front of me, these same words that I've read over and over suddenly mean something different to me. Well, and they are scattered throughout scripture. And I can think of, so the mother hen image that you mentioned from both the Matthew and Luke's and Optic Gospels is the probably most common scripture reference that people know. Mm-hmm. Also because in some Protestant traditions, they celebrate Mother Hen Sunday in the liturgical calendar. But Paul himself talks about like newborns crave spiritual milk and Nicodemus asks Jesus, how do I be born again? Right? So all of these birthing and rebirthing images are throughout the Hebrew scriptures and New Testament. I have heard women lament the dearth of female characters in the Bible. They are there, but not to the extent that we hear from the prophets and the kings who who it gets focused on. So I think it's really interesting that so many of these scriptures you've put in the guide, which you used as a basis for the book, are God using feminine imagery. Like you talked about, will I forget you? Can a a nursing mother forget her child? No. I had never, until I read, read this book and looked at the guide, thought about how much God is putting the feminine front and forward, not like you even have to search to find it. It's there if you're even halfway aware of looking for it. And so much of that is the way we're enculturated to read and interpret scripture and what we are taught to focus on. Um, some of my favorite stories of amazing women in the Bible were not brought to my attention until I was an adult. And I was a very good evangelical Midwestern child. I read my Bible all the way through at least two or three times growing up. So I technically read these stories. I just didn't remember them. 
I didn't remember or have a Sunday school lesson on the daughters of Zelophehad. I didn't remember the midwife Shipra and Pua from the Exodus story. But those are some of my favorite stories of subversive women or the story of Rizpah, one of my favorite characters in the Hebrew Bible. Mm. And I love that Moses' mother, yes, she gave up her child, but she managed to sneak into Pharaoh's palace and be the nursemaid and actually help raise her child. Right. Extremely subversive and also entrepreneurial of her, right? (laughs) To do that. (laughs) That was Reverend Teresa Kim Pesanofsky in Houston, Texas. You can see images from the book and download the scripture guide at Teresa's website, www.tkpcreates.com Our last interview is with Dr. Simran Jeet Singh, a visiting professor of history and religion at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Heather caught up with him when he spoke at BYU's J. Reuben Clark Law School's Religious Freedom Annual Review in June of 2022. Simran's family is from the Sikh tradition and relocated from India when religious conflict resulted in harassment and violence against them. Simran was born and raised in Texas and faced harassment there, which increased in intensity after the terrorist attacks on Manhattan in September 2001. But Simran and his family clung to their faith and their scripture to find peace and guidance in how to love those who wanted to hurt them. The Sikh sacred text is called the Adi Granth, first compiled in 1604, and it's a collection of texts from earlier Sikh gurus, as well as Hindu and Muslim saints that can be recited or sung. The initial composition in Sikh scripture, and it appears multiple times, uh, is essentially a list of qualities. They're, they're like synonyms for the divine. Uh, and I'll, I'll recite them for you and I can talk through their meanings and then what they've meant to me. So it's called the Mulmantar, which is essentially the, the root or the core formula. And many, many have supposed or many have suggested that this is the essence of Sikh teachings. Ik Oankar, Satnam, Kartapurik, Nirpo, Nirver, Kalmurat, Ajuni, Sapang, Gurprasad. So those are those are the original terms. And they're essentially a list of qualities. You know, Ikonkar, the first uh, refers to the the unity of a divine force, oneness. The second term, Satanam, refers to the truth. The divine is truth. Uh, the third, Gartapurak, is the divine is creative. And it goes on fearless, without hate or enmity, unborn, self-created, undying, and, and effectively, at the end, um, realized through the grace of the guru. As a child, and this is how I've taught it to my girls too, it's, you, you learn it as a set of words. And you, you initially don't even know what they mean. And over time... I'd come to understand the meanings and I would say, okay, this is our conception of what God looks like. God is these things. And that was cool too, right? Like that was helpful to me in, in creating a base of what, what I would now call theology. But the real force of it came in understanding that, well, I'll, I'll tell you a, a story. One day my dad came to me and he said, well, what does it matter that God is one? Or what does it matter that God is true? And he, and he said, if Guru Nanak, the founder, had said, God is three or God is false or whatever, like how would that affect your life as a Sikh? What difference would it make? And I really hadn't thought about that question up until that point. And I was still young, but it was it was a fascinating thought exercise that revealed to me ultimately in, in conversation with him that these qualities matter not just because of some theological principle, but because they are given to us as aspirations for what we can be as humans, what we should strive for in our daily lives. So if God is without fear, then we should learn to live without fear. If God is without hate or anger, these are the best of qualities within us that we can cultivate. That to me is the force of Mulmantar. It's not just a list of qualities that we ascribe to the divine. We teach in our tradition that we are all divine and we can all access and tap into these qualities. And that's what we aspire to do in our day-to-day lives. Mulmantar, is that word, the second word related to mantra? It is, yes. Which means prayer. Which means prayer or formula, maybe something like that, uh, something that you recite. Right. You know, one, one thing that's interesting to me is in so many South Asian traditions, 
mantra is ascribed some sort of like super magical power. Right. So like if you say these things, then something great will happen in your life. And what the guru said was transformation happens through practicing these ideas. So let us give you the qualities. You live by them and that's the mantra, right? You just not that you just say something and you become something. You actually live it. And you're also talking about something that I think we all go through is whatever our mantra is, right? Whatever we repeat to ourselves, we have different relationships with it over time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we are like, oh, I've been saying that and I didn't actually know what it meant. Totally. And now I know, right? And other times we're like, wait a minute. (laughs) I've been saying that and I haven't been living it at all. And I don't know if I want to. Do I want to? Right? And we sort of interrogate ourselves. And so can you speak to that? What's been your relationship over time as you sort of have that and repeat that to yourself? It's a, it's a, such a good question. You know, I, I would say the more I've come to understand these teachings, the deeper they have become for me. And, and my faith within them has become deepened as well. And, and I'll give you a specific example. You know, from childhood, the first term in the sixth scripture, in the, in the Mulmantar as well, is ikongar, which means the oneness of, of the divine. In many ways, it's a really simple idea. Like, I teach it to my, to my kids four and six years old. They get it. I understood it when I was a kid. And the way you articulate that is vaiguru, which is the word we use for the divine. Vaiguru is in everyone, equally in their hearts. Like vaiguru, and, and they get it, right? Like it's simple enough. And so for a long time, I think I sort of took that idea for granted. And it, it gave me a baseline understanding of our shared humanity and, and my commitment to equality and justice was really born out of that. But I had never really dug into what does it mean to live with oneness as it pertains to your inner being. I was I remember I was in college when I came across a text. I started studying it from the sixth scripture called Asakibar for the first time. And it talks a lot about oneness as opposed to duality. And I'd never really thought about the dualities of our daily lives. Like it's it's very pointed about living with hypocrisy. You know, you live one thing and you say something else. Like one of the lines in there, it says, You're planting poison, but you expect nectar. Like what, what, what are you doing? Like it makes no sense. So in, in some ways, like this text opened up to me the depth of our daily, the dichotomies that we live into, right? Like what, what do you do versus what you say? And within this text itself, it says, lovers aren't ones who are divided. They're, they're constantly immersed in love. Like there's a wholeness to that. And like you can think about your relationship with your loved ones and, and you can see how that is, right? You do what you say and you say what you do because you care, right? You're moved to. So that, that was one element of, of how this opened up to me. And, and I think the other, the other for me that really deepened was to go into the dualities of how we conceive of the world, not because... That's how the sick worldview is. But because I was raised in a majority Christian country, uh, so much of that theology is rooted in duality, right? So I'd always grown up around ideas of good and evil or purity and pollution or heaven and hell or the divine and the devil, right? Like these were dichotomies that I had grown up around and had shaped my thinking even subconsciously. And going through this text and trying to really take seriously this idea that everything is equally divine. There's no place for any kind of discrimination, right? On a personal level or in our understanding of the world where we say something is better, something is worse, and then we can create dichotomies based on that. I mean, it just made sense to me in terms of not not just from a theological perspective, but actually from even from a secular worldview of looking at the world and saying, yes, like all of these atoms, we're, we're all comprised of the same elements, and, and, and the whole world is made up of the same atoms. So to really say something is good and something, I mean, it's, it's arbitrary and it's based on our, you know, conceptions of and, and our experiences of power. And that's what creates suffering and we don't have to live that way. So it's, it's a long way of answering the question, but I'm just thinking through those really powerful moments for me where I took seriously this idea and then explored what it would look like in a way that I hadn't really considered before. I'm going to just ask you one more question. I think it connects to the Ikonkar And it's progression of thought that you chart for us, which is there's a a time when I thought we're the same and thus I love you. Mm. And then you get to a point where you're like, no, we're different. And I still am going to love you. Can you walk us through that transition in your thought? In 2012, when this white supremacist uh, massacred a Sikh congregation in Wisconsin, I mean, it was a really important inflection point for me. And of, of course, you know, 
there were there were community members who were more much more directly affected. For me, the the experience that I, that I share in the book was really trying to understand how do I practice what I preach and really see the humanity in someone who didn't see the humanity in us. And more than that, created real direct harm for people and never apologized, right? He took his own life before before that incident, before the massacre was complete. And so it was it was a really I don't want to use the word difficult, but it, it was it was a challenge for me to get to a point where I knew how I wanted to see him, but I couldn't actually feel that reality. I couldn't actually see him as equally human because I was so, you know, some of me was angry initially and, and I worked through that. But a bigger part of it was I really couldn't see what we had in common. I tried very hard. Actually, I went to the neo-Nazi message boards uh, that he would read to try and get a sense of his thinking. I wouldn't recommend other people do that, that because it was awful. it was terrible. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I really thought that if I could get in his head in some way, then I could see his humanity. And what I learned through through this experience was I couldn't. Like I, we were just so different. We saw the world so differently. Our life experiences had been so different. And ultimately, I had to get to a place where that was not the vehicle to do it. And it, it works in a lot of cases, right? Like a lot of people that are different from us, we can find commonalities. And it's it's in some ways a shortcut, but the deeper, more powerful way and, and what worked for me in recognizing the humanity in this killer who clearly didn't care for me was learning how to care for him uh, and to see that despite what he did, despite our differences, we still had a light that we share that's, that's inside of us and it's there and... Yeah, it's it's a difficult thing to come to terms with, uh, but once you do, it creates a different kind of opportunity for connection. And, and and really, I think what I've come to believe is the power of that exercise for me is that if we can learn to see the humanity in the people who are most different from us, then we can learn to see it in everyone we meet, and and that's completely transformative. That was Simran Jeet Singh speaking about using sacred Sikh wisdom to better guide his relationships. You can read Simran's new book, The Light We Give, from Penguin Random House. We hope this episode inspired you to think about the sacred texts in your life. How do you use them? What do they mean to you? And why they're important? How do you make those scriptures real and vibrant? Have they helped you strengthen your relationships? Or forgive when it seemed impossible to forgive? This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. Post Sound was designed by Kira Brewer. Special thanks to Peter Ellison for engineering interviews. And our thanks to Simran Jeet Singh, Teresa Kim Pesinovsky, Duncan Williams, Dan McClellan, and Amisha Chaudhary for speaking with us about their experiences and thoughts about Scripture. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a five-star comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. 